A federal judge last week blocked a ban on gender-affirming care for children. This ruling only applied in Arkansas. But in other red states, we are still seeing a wave of these kinds of restrictions. Well, transgendered minors in Texas hoping to have gender-affirming care won't be able to get it in about three months. A priority for some Republicans to limit transgender athletes and restrict gender-related health care for minors passed the Missouri Senate today. Last week, Alabama became the third state in the nation to pass a measure restricting gender-affirming care for transgender and non-binary youth. But it's the first state to actually impose criminal penalties. The law. And now we're starting to understand more about the forces behind these laws, in part because of reporting from our colleague Lauren Weber, who has been looking into a group called the American College of Pediatricians. This group, it sounds official, but Lauren has found it's actually quite small and pretty fringe. Their support for conversion therapy, their positions against gender-affirming care. They even get into things like spanking on their website. You know, they're pro-spanking. There's a variety of stances that they disagree with the vast majority of medical groups on. Lauren and others at The Post recently accessed a trove of internal documents that show just how influential this group has become. Well, this group has really grown in influence over the last couple of years. I mean, they're currently one of the plaintiffs on the Mifepristone case, which is the one of the key drugs for abortion access in the U.S. that's currently winding its way through the courts. They have helped influence a lot of the pushback against gender-affirming care across the United States. They've successfully helped strip uh, many folks in many states of their ability to access that care through lobbying legislatures, sending letters, um, appearing on Fox News, being used as a resource by right-wing media. And so my colleagues and I thought that, you know, with these internal documents, it, it would be good to get a good overlook of what's What's happening? What's going on with this group? How are they able to achieve this influence? How has it grown? And, and, and what does it mean? From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Elahe Izadi. It's Tuesday, June 27th. Today, I talk with Lauren about her reporting on the American College of Pediatricians and how a small group of conservative doctors have become big-time influencers on issues like abortion and trans rights. The American College of Pediatricians, it sounds so official, like within the name, but how does it compare to other medical groups? You know, there's the American Academy of Pediatrics, which sounds very similar, but is very different. It has 67,000 members, 95% of whom are doctors. Um, that's in comparison to the American College of Pediatricians, which has about 700 members from what our reporting showed from their internal documents. And, and roughly 60% of those folks identify as physicians. So very different when it comes to size and stature across the U.S. in terms of their membership. Wow, that's like a very, very small group by comparison. It is absolutely much smaller. And I, I think that's an important point to note about this group is what their membership size is compared to the influence they've managed to accrue over the last couple of years. 
Lauren, let's take a step back. Can we talk about the history of the American College of Pediatricians? When was it founded and why did it even start to begin with? So it was actually founded in 2002 by a group of physicians that peeled off from that American Academy of Pediatrics, which I was talking about. So they actually peeled off because they were upset because the American Academy of Pediatrics had come out with a statement in research in support of same-sex parenting. So this group was was spun off because they opposed same-sex parenting. And um, its founder, Zanga, Dr. Zanga, when they spun off, said, you know, look, we this is going to be a Judeo-Christian organization that, you know, believes in family values, that will not support same-sex parenting, that believes in the sanctity of life. And that's really how the American College of Pediatricians began. And how did the group evolve from there? Were they really successful once they broke off into this different organization? So, you know, the group really struggled initially. You know, it, for years it's tried to attract physicians, it, you know, with its small membership. It needs money from them for membership dues to, to get by. It's, you know, targeted, quote, Christian MDs and mailers from what we could tell from the internal documents. It also targeted doctors in red states. But it, it struggled for funding, and in part that's because it was labeled a hate group by the Southern Poverty Law Center in 2012 for some of its anti-LGBTQ statements, which really hurt some of its funding capabilities. So what turned the tide for them? How did they end up getting so much influence from that, you know, point where they were really struggling? Well, in recent years, they've been able to use conservative right-wing media as a megaphone, and that's that's really helped boost their platform and their profile. You know, our reporting found that, you know, they had they had appeared on shows like Fox News' Tucker Carlson show. Michelle Cotelli is the president of the American College of Pediatricians. She just wrote a piece in which she says, we're quoting now, transgender ideology has infiltrated my field and produced... You know, our analysis showed that since 2016, the group has been mentioned in more than 200 articles published by conservative news sites like Breitbart, Daily Wire... The Washington Examiner, The Blaze, Gateway Pundit. And the volume of mentions really picked up this year, in part because of their, the, you know, interest and ability to be the plaintiff on the Mifepristone case, which is that key abortion drug case that's winding its way through the courts. Breaking news, a federal judge in Texas has ruled that the FDA's authorization of the abortion drug Mifepristone more than 20 years ago was improper and has suspended its approval. Also because... They're currently involved in fighting against gender-affirming care for transgender minors across the U.S., and that is currently something that is getting a lot of airtime and a lot of interest from folks across the country. Do you know if that's how conservative lawmakers were influenced? Was it through their media coverage, or did they directly interact and, and speak with lawmakers on in these various states? They also directly interacted with state legislatures. They've sent many letters that helped successfully pass legislation. They've testified in front of legislatures. HB 454, the SAFE Act, protects already at risk gender dysphoric youth from experimental and unproven hormonal and surgical gender-affirming therapy. Our review of the document showed that they certainly have influenced not just at the state legislature level, but at the local level as well. You know, they encourage their members to to get involved in these issues. They've sent letters even to local hospital systems. They sent one to a hospital system, a Catholic hospital system in St. Louis, um, that 
they sent it to the Archbishop of St. Louis, who ended up um, sending a letter to the hospital asking them to change their procedures when it dealt with gender-affirming care, which the hospital did. Uh, they have also been able to influence different policies at different places. They've submitted a ton of amicus briefs in high-profile legal cases. You know, they, they've, as I said, have ended up on national TV talking about these policy issues. You know, the extent of their influence is, is pretty broad, especially considering the size of the group. And Lauren, you mentioned the abortion drug, mifepristone, and that case is a, is actually a really big one for abortion access in the U.S., right? Can you remind us the details of that case and what the American College of Pediatricians' role in it is? Absolutely. So they are plaintiffs in this case. And mifepristone, for those that don't know, is a key drug in medication abortions. And medication abortions make up about 50 percent of abortions in this country. And right now, access to mifepristone is under threat by this lawsuit, uh, which it's currently winding its way through appeals court. But if the American College of Pediatricians, the plaintiffs in this case, were to win, access to it could be limited, which would which would starkly change the abortion landscape in the United States. And how does the American College of Pediatricians come to their official policy positions. You know, my understanding is that with medical groups, when they put out a position and endorse a stance, it's backed by science and there's a rigorous methodology behind it. So these positions that the American College of Pediatricians takes, what are they using, you know, on things like conversion therapy or gender-affirming care? You know, they often cite studies, uh, but we have found in our deep dive of their documents that some of these studies have other conflicting studies. Or, you know, they cited, for instance, the NIH director, Francis Collins, some of his research work. And he came out with a, a big statement back in 2010 that he was really frustrated by this because he felt like they were distorting his research to make a point against homosexuality. He put out a big statement on the NIH website and said that he felt like they were twisting his words in this letter that they had sent to school superintendents that encouraged school superintendents to not affirm children as gay, to not support them in that way. You know, we also have had more recent studies than some of the studies they cite. They cited a 1991 study that said for each year adolescents delay self-labeling as gay, the risk of suicide decreases by 20 percent and went on to talk about conversion therapy and some of those materials. But according to more recent research, you know, suicide risk rises with therapy directed at changing sexual orientation. And, you know, folks that experienced conversion therapy were almost mm -hmm. twice as likely to think about suicide and to attempt suicide compared to peers who had not experienced conversion therapy. So there's a lot of dispute in the medical societies with this group, usually with the stances that they put out. And so what has the ACP said to you and your colleagues about your reporting? So I spoke with uh, Jill Simons, the executive director of the group, and she disputed criticism that our organization promotes policies that don't follow science. She said that our recommendations are based on the medical research and what is best for children. And she went on to say that her organization represents all the, quote, good pediatricians out there who agree with us, who maybe are afraid to step forward, very smart people in the field of medicine have disagreed with a lot of the so-called consensus that is out there, end quote. After the break, we dive into the inner workings of the American College of Pediatricians. 
We'll be right back. I'm Hannah Rosen, host of Radio Atlantic. Wait, really? Every week, we talk to Atlantic writers or other creative thinkers, and we take one idea and we road test it. Maybe what I'm asking is, is the problem them or us? Sometimes I change my mind about things. That's such a good point. I never thought of that. Maybe you will, too. Or at least you might see something differently. Ooh, that's fabulous. Radio Atlantic. New episodes every Thursday. So, Lauren, one thing I keep thinking about is how during the pandemic, there was a lot of doubt and erosion of trust in public health institutions and the scientific community writ large. And I wonder, does that erosion of trust play any role here? Because, you know, we're in this environment where people are especially distrustful of mainstream medical and scientific groups and There are people seeking out alternative information, and they may come across a group that, you know, as you and your colleagues have looked into, is much smaller, very much out of line with the mainstream, and also coming to conclusions using some questionable methods. You know, coming out of COVID, we have seen a hose of misinformation that's continued to grow and be an issue. And I I think you're absolutely right in the sense that, you know, various folks are able to capitalize on that to promote their views. They are able to present uh, what they want you to follow them onto. And I think as America is trying to sort through who's telling the truth and who's not, it makes everything a little bit more gray and it makes everything a little bit harder to discern. So I think we'll see the ramifications of that continue to play out over the next couple of years. So, Lauren, you and your colleagues took a very deep look at the inner workings of this particular group. How did you manage to do this? So my colleague Taylor Lorenz and then also Caitlin Gilbert and I all reviewed the internal documents of this group. So we reviewed the documents from two sources who individually accessed them via the Google Drive the group had left publicly accessible. I should add here that the American College of Pediatricians called this a malicious cyber attack and hate crime intended to intimidate and incapacitate them. The post also, we examined the document's metadata, including the date each file was created or modified to determine that they hadn't been recently manipulated. And then we painstakingly went through thousands of documents to be able to explain to readers how this group has evolved, how it's become way more influential, and what's behind it. And I also want to add here that the breach was first reported by Wired. Lauren, was there anything else in your review of the documents that really surprised you or that you thought was particularly revealing about how this group operates? I think it's really interesting to know that they haven't had a lot of money and they have really struggled for years to recruit members. But even though they've struggled to recruit members, we found in our review that they do have several prominent ones. They have folks that run hospital divisions across the country. They even have a member who is the head of the Texas State Public Health Department, John Hellerstedt. He was listed in their membership records that we reviewed, but unfortunately, he declined to be interviewed. But I think it's important to note that even though they do have a small membership, this group has tapped into folks that are in positions of power across the country and that can then influence policy or appear on Fox News or can affect change at the local level. 
You know, Lauren, one big thing this all raises for me is how difficult it can be to, you know, as they say, do your own research and to find good, solid information about a range of medical topics, which on its face, you know, that is something that perhaps we should all be doing, you know trying to consult with trusted institutions and physicians to try to figure out what's really best for us, you know, about a range of things, including uh, gender identity and gender-affirming care and these sorts of topics. So what can people do to make sure that when they are, you know, going out in the world and trying to understand um, and trying to get good medical information, what can they do to make sure that indeed they are getting good medical information? Yeah, you know, I, I think one of the most illuminating interviews I had was with Sam Weinberg, who is a disinformation researcher uh, based out of Stanford, who, you know, basically said to me, and I'll quote, you know, the group has all the bells and whistles of credibility, you know, end quote. It looks like a, an official medical organization and you're easily duped into thinking that this is the umbrella organization for pediatricians in the United States. I mean, he basically walked through how if you go to their website, it, it looks, you know, you've got the white coats, you've got the scientific language, you have all of that. And but for some folks, if you dig a little deeper, these these statements, these stances very much run counter to what the vast majority of medical societies are saying as their scientific stance. We engage in something called temporal discounting. We, if, if, if something requires a, 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 some effort, when, in the, when we have something in hand that uh, speaks to the question that we want, we'll often skip the extra homework. He's had researchers, students at Stanford, historians, that look at groups like this and are unaware because they didn't do more research, they didn't dig deeper, they didn't go past the first five-second survey of it, that they hold beliefs that are different than other major medical societies. And I, I think that's a lesson for all of us that, you know, when you click around the internet, you, you need to make it sure that what you're looking at it is what you think you're looking at. Well, Lauren, thank you so much for bringing this reporting to us today. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Lauren Weber is a health and science accountability reporter for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Gabe O'Connor and edited by Maggie Penman. It was mixed by Sean Carter. Thanks to Tracy Jan. I also want to let you know about something really cool happening right now at The Post. For the next three days, The Washington Post has dropped its paywall. Until midnight Thursday, you can access as many free articles as you want. From in-depth accountability reporting, like what you just heard today, to advice columns and dinner recipes, all you have to do is enter your email address when prompted. Go to WashingtonPost.com for more. I'm Elahe Izadi. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.